Today on Golden Girls Sports, I predict we'll talk about some old sports broadcasters. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby. Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... And Ma Makes Three premiered on February 20th, 1988, the 20th episode of the Golden Girls' third season. It was written by Winifred Hervey Stallworth and directed by Terry Hughes. We talked about this episode way back in season one, when we collected the show's golf jokes. And within those golf jokes was another sports subject that deserves a deeper look. Despondent over the death of a friend, Sophia finds company in Dorothy and her new boyfriend Raymond, who is played by authoritative character actor and one-time Pathmark pitchman James Caron. But what starts as a kind gesture soon becomes an awkward burden, and Dorothy resorts to subterfuge just to get some alone time with her man. So where are you going all dressed up? Raymond invited me out for an intimate dinner. Actually, it'll be the first time in weeks that we've been anywhere without Ma. Is that why you sent her off to the drugstore? You're dumping your own mother? Faster than CBS dumped Jimmy the Greek. (laughs) In the end, Dorothy chooses her mother over a trip to the Bahamas, cursing that wretched old woman but doing the right thing. And Raymond returned to his original job of selling homes built on Native American burial grounds. I guess. In 1988, CBS had a decision to make of their own, and it became one of the most topical jokes the Golden Girls ever made, and is an incident that's still discussed widely today. In May of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the 26-year-old Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, paving the way for states to set up legalized sports gambling. But when talking about sports betting and television, a name still widely remembered today is that of Dimitrios Giorgios Sinodinos, better and forever known as Jimmy the Greek Snyder. He was born in Steubenville, Ohio in 1918. When he was 10, Jimmy's mother and aunt were shot and killed by his aunt's estranged husband, who also shot himself. Jimmy believed he would have been dead too had he not returned to his father's grocery store earlier that evening. From an early age, Jimmy was a gambler, but he learned and appreciated how odds worked, and he would go on to essentially create the concept of the point spread and the over-under among other betting ideas. As a teenager, he hung around other gamblers in pool halls and at the train tracks where he would collect out-of-town newspapers to get the inside information from local reporters that other bettors in Ohio might not know. And he was an absolute winner, sometimes even loaning his own father money. He could thank legendary reporter Walter Winchell for his nickname, after the newspaper and radio man wrote a column about the young Greek gambler from Steubenville that was cleaning up. Sports wasn't the Greek's only outlet either. He won $170,000 on the Truman-Dewey election of 1948. He also invested his earnings into oil drilling and other ventures. But those bets didn't work out, so in the late 50s, he moved to Las Vegas. Snyder was convicted of interstate gambling in the 60s, forcing him into looking for more legit ways to earn money, and he became a PR man for Caesars Palace and other show business outlets. While working behind the scenes, The Greek was instrumental in getting poker on TV for the first time, 40 years before the World Series of Poker took over ESPN2 for 50 hours a day. 
His work setting betting lines in a syndicated newspaper column made him famous, first among bettors, then among readers nationwide. He was so popular he got his felony conviction for gambling pardoned by President Ford in 1974, paving his way towards even more fame. Jimmy the Greek joined CBS's NFL Today program in 1976. Analyst Snyder, 58 years old at the time, joined play-by-play man Brent Musburger, NFL veteran Irv Cross, and reporter and former Miss America Phyllis George on the one-year-old pregame show and helped make it a hit for the next decade plus. The charismatic Greek was the full package when he signed with the Tiffany Network. He had the looks and the voice of a gangster, the gold chains of a winner, the picks of a prophet, and even an unforgettable nickname to boot. And Snyder loved being a part of CBS because he felt it finally legitimized his life's work. His weekly pregame spot and work in TV commercials popularized gambling all across the country, making something that was once only done in dark alleys and sinful casinos acceptable in American living rooms. But that doesn't mean it was one big happy family. The behind-the-scenes drama was as exciting as the -the on-the-field action that the NFL Today covered so entertainingly. In 1980, upset over the amount of airtime he was getting, Jimmy the Greek decked Musburger in a New York City restaurant in a fight that went public almost immediately. Although the crew played it off for laughs the next week, the tension continued. Jimmy could occasionally be mean or belittling. Phyllis George, the beauty queen, governor's wife, and sports journalist pioneer who we'll talk about again in a few minutes, clashed with the Greek's brusque personality and could be brought to tears moments before going on air. At one point, she refused to be on the same set as the Greek, and the solution was to have him record his predictions earlier the morning before games. Musburger, George, and Cross then did the rest of the show without it. Despite growing more high maintenance as the years went on, for 12 seasons, Jimmy the Greek was synonymous with CBS and the NFL, which is amazing considering that sports betting was largely illegal in the United States. But by predicting final scores, without ever mentioning betting lines or point spreads, Snyder could keep on the NFL's good side while also giving bettors the odds that they craved. Then, on Martin Luther King Day, 1988, it all went away. In an interview with a local Washington, D.C. station about civil rights and sports, Snyder went on an extended diatribe about how black athletes had been bred to be better than their white counterparts thanks to their history as slaves. Among other things, he complained that the only sports jobs left for whites were as coaches and that blacks would be coming for those soon, too. The clip is widely viewable on YouTube, and watching a man smiling while setting fire to his entire career with some misguided, insensitive, and straight-up racist rhetoric is not an easy thing to watch. The backlash to the comments was swift and powerful, decried and criticized by politicians, networks, and civil rights groups across the country. Sociologist, activist, and writer Harry Edwards called Snyder, quote, abysmally ignorant. Snyder was contrite following the interview apologizing immediately and saying of his own remarks, quote, I should have expressed myself a lot better than I did today, end quote. He lobbied his bosses to be allowed to report from the next day's game at RFK Stadium, not wanting to believe that one incident should erase a 12-year relationship with the network. But what was done was done. The next day, Snyder was fired by CBS. Musburger delivered the message to viewers on the air just before that day's NFC Championship game. And with that, Jimmy the Greek Snyder was all but finished, 
falling from prognosticator to punchline in one day. TV work was a non-starter after the Martin Luther King Day incident. He retreated from the public eye after that, writing a column on betting for a Las Vegas newspaper, while his health declined over the next few years. Snyder was married twice. He and his second wife, Joan, had five children, but heartbreakingly lost three to cystic fibrosis. Jamie, one of his sons, died of the disease when he was 27. In April of 1996, at the age of 78, Dimitrios Georgios Sinodinos, a.k.a. Jimmy the Greek Snyder, died of a heart attack. Brent Musburger said he was, quote, the first of a kind, but he was also a character, end quote. So much of a character that a 30 for 30 documentary called The Legend of Jimmy the Greek, based on his life and career, premiered on ESPN in 2009. But no amount of character can distract from the ugly or the shameful. And for all of his insight into the betting world, Jimmy the Greek could have used a little bit more into the real world. Three years before his reference on the Golden Girls, Jimmy the Greek's one-time NFL Today colleague, Phyllis George, beat him to it. Season 1's That Was No Lady was mentioned on episode 18 of this podcast. It was written by Liz Sage, who wrote 48 episodes of The Carol Burnett Show, as well as episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter, Punky Brewster, Mr. Belvedere, Major Dad, and Step by Step, among others. Dorothy is dating a married man named Glenn, played by tough guy character actor Alex Rocco. The relationship weighs heavily on her, and the two take a short break, but Dorothy has a hard time letting go. Are you depressed about Glenn? No, I'm depressed because Phyllis George left the morning news. <laughs> they end up seeing each other again, and then breaking up again, before Glenn resurfaced in season 5's Cheaters, where he was played by Jerry Orbach. Phyllis George had an on-again, off-again relationship with the NFL today, but for all of the drama it caused, her inclusion on that show was an important step for women in sports broadcasting. Born in Denton, Texas, Phyllis George was named Miss Texas in 1970 and Miss America in 1971. She did three interviews on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson during her reign and also booked co-hosting gigs on later Miss America pageants and Candid Camera. She was very pretty and very well-spoken, but she wasn't the first female football broadcaster. An earlier version of the NFL Today had Marjorie Margolis and Carol Howey as reporters. Jane Chastain worked NFL games as a commentator alongside announcers Don Crickey and Irv Cross in 1974. That experiment didn't go over well with an unprepared public. So when casting his new NFL Live pregame show, Network Vice President Bob Wussler wanted someone who could stand up to the intense pressure that sports fans put on broadcasters. By her own admission, George was not knowledgeable about sports, outside of some casual watching she may have done in her life. But she accepted Wussler's offer to work at CBS Sports while also growing her insight into the games with various other assignments. Doing commentary for tennis didn't work out, but an intimate, revealing conversation with laconic Celtic star Dave Cowens at his cabin outside of Boston showed George had the goods. So in 1975, the NFL Today premiered with George, Musburger, and Cross as hosts. They each brought something to the party that made the show work. Quote, We had such good chemistry that we were dubbed the Mod Squad of CBS Sports. Brent, Irv, and I enjoyed it so much that our enthusiasm came across as genuine and spontaneous. Each of us had a role. Brent was the traffic cop. He called on us and tied it all together. Irv talked about stats and strategies, and I interviewed the players. 
Bob Whistler deserves all the credit for putting our team together. End quote. Jimmy the Greek would be added a year later, and the NFL Today would reign supreme as the football pregame show for the next dozen-plus years. But the show's popularity didn't shield George from criticisms that she didn't understand football, didn't add much to the show outside of a pretty face, and basically only shined in one-on-one interviews, which she seemed to do with the same few players every season. George left the show in 1978 and was replaced by another pageant winner, Miss Ohio USA Jane Kennedy, and she also heard the same criticisms that her predecessor did. ESPN announcer Mike Patrick told Shelley Smith of the San Francisco Examiner in 1987, quote, They set women in TV sports back 20 years. Here were people with wonderful personalities and everything else, but they had no clue what they were doing. It was unfair to them and it was unfair to the other women who wanted to be in that position. It was the easy thing to do rather than searching to find a woman who really knew what she was talking about. End quote. In 1980, George returned to the NFL Today, then exited again in 1983 as her maternity leave became a permanent one. But she wasn't done at CBS. In 1985, a new version of the CBS Morning News premiered, co-anchored by George and veteran newsman Bill Curtis. The two didn't exactly have a lot of chemistry, and George once again faced charges that she was ill-equipped for the job, this time as a straight journalist. Less than five months into her morning news tenure, George interviewed a man whose rape conviction was overturned after his accuser recanted her story. At the end of the segment, George asked the two if they would share a hug. They declined, and viewers voiced their extreme displeasure and disagreement at the very idea. CBS executives that had been in her corner suddenly weren't. About two months later, George and the network mutually agreed she should leave the program, and thus she became a punchline on the Golden Girls. She returned to her home in Kentucky, where she lived with her husband, former Kentucky Governor John Brown. The two were married in 1979, and her position as the first lady of a state also helped contribute to the idea of her inaccessibility with viewers. It was also fodder for Jimmy the Greek, who teased and taunted her about it, leading to those pre-show tears. George and Brown divorced in 1998, and the couple have two children. Before she was married to the governor, George spent a year as the fourth wife of movie producer and flamboyant raconteur Robert Evans. Not sure how that happened, but I'm sure it's a wild story. She has returned to TV periodically over the years, including hosting a special on what was once the Nashville Network and other Miss America pageants. She also founded two businesses, a food company called Chicken by George that was sold to Hormel in 1988, and a line of beauty products. Phyllis George took a lot of abuse in her career, both for her work and for just being a woman in sports. While women have more of a place today in sports broadcasting than ever before, there's still a vast minority in that world, and sadly take more than their share of abuse just for doing their jobs. Just check Twitter for mentions of Jessica Mendoza every week during ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball. Or better still, don't. Even being a two-time gold medalist in softball and working for the worldwide leader in sports for four years isn't enough of a resume for some people. But George's true impact is in the legacy she left, and her presence on the NFL Today showed other women that they could work football shows alongside men. Beth Moens, who became the second woman ever to broadcast a nationwide NFL game in 2017 when she called the season-opening Chargers-Broncos game, specifically cited seeing George on the CBS pregame show as an eye-opening moment in her life that would prove to be prophetic. Quote, There was a woman talking about football, 
That's what I was drawn to. I like sports and I like to talk, so the two blended together perfectly. End quote. Phyllis George is someone I've always known was on TV. I just wasn't sure as what. Her story is a hodgepodge, highlighted by both victories and defeats, all of which were, for whatever reason, very, very public. But she never stopped smiling and waving, no matter what everyone was saying around her. And that's inspiring, even on its own. You know who else was a pioneer for women in sports? Blanche Devereaux. Or at least, that's what she told the guy she wanted to pick up in the library. In season six's Stand By Your Man, written by Tom Whedon, Blanche accompanies Dorothy on one of her weekly visits to the library and meets Ted, a nice-looking sports agent who's there doing research. You're a sports agent? Hey, I bet we know some of the same people. I was one of the first women ever allowed in the Miami Dolphins locker room. Reporter? Photographer. (laughs) To Blanche's shock, Ted is in a wheelchair, and she's unaware of how to handle being with a disabled man. On their first official date, she brings Sophia along as a chaperone, but Ted sees what's happening and tries to show Blanche that he's just a regular guy who was once an athlete himself. Blanche, you a little nervous? Nervous? Me? Wheelchair. (laughs) I mean, no, no, not at all. Come on, Blanche. Most people in wheelchairs were something else until that one second before their accident and their lives change. Hey, take a look at this guy in the baseball uniform. I'm still basically that guy. And so Blanche comes to believe she's in love with Ted in spite of the wheelchair. And when he tells her he's flying in from Philadelphia and needs to see her, she believes he's going to ask her to make a commitment to him. But when he balks at bringing her back north, she finally figures out his game. He has a wife. And so she shows him the door, and her small degree of personal growth flies out the window. The plot is slightly reminiscent of Blind Date, the season 4 episode we talked about on episode 3 of this podcast. In that one, Blanche goes out with a blind man and can't figure out how to be with a guy who doesn't like her for her looks, but her trepidation causes her to lose a chance at a good relationship. This time, Blanche is better off without adulterer Ted. Playing Ted in Stand By Your Men was Hugh Farrington, a wheelchair-bound actor who was injured in a small plane crash in the 1960s. Farrington was a pilot in the Navy and continued to fly a personal plane even after his accident. But he also started acting and made his movie debut as himself in Hal Ashby's disabled veteran drama Coming Home in 1978. In the early 80s, Farrington made it to TV in two episodes of Quincy M.E. He later appeared on Alice, The Fall Guy, Airwolf, MacGyver, and 18 episodes of T.J. Hooker, in which he played cigar-loving disabled police lieutenant Pete O'Brien. Farrington also had a bit part in James Cameron's Terminator. His appearance in Stand By Your Man was Hugh Farrington's final TV role. He passed away in 2001 at the age of 70 due to complications from surgery. Let's switch from CBS to NBC for another sports broadcaster who branched out to something else. In Twice in a Lifetime, a season 5 episode written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, which we talked about last time, Sophia has moved out because she wants her own life. And surprisingly, Blanche and Rose are feeling down about it too because they had come to confide their secrets in Sophia, which shocks the hell out of Dorothy. Now that she's gone, who am I going to go to in the middle of the night with my deepest personal problems? Wait a minute. You went to my mother's room in the middle of the night? Many, many times. 
sometimes two or three times a week. And she was always so kind and comforting. I don't understand. Every time I'd knock on her door late at night, she'd say, not now, I'm watching Bob Costas. <laughs> Sophia doesn't have a TV in her room. I know. <laughs> of course, Sophia returns at the end because she misses the girls and also because she needs an alibi for something. Despite growing up in Comac, Long Island, and attending Syracuse University in upstate New York, where he called Syracuse Blazers minor league hockey games, the city Bob Costas is probably most associated with is St. Louis. In 1974, so the story goes, the 22-year-old Costas doctored his audition tape to make his voice sound lower so that he could get a job as a radio play-by-play man for the spirits of St. Louis of the ABA. On his first day in the city, so another story goes, he left a $3.31 tip for a hamburger in honor of legendary Cardinal Stan Musial's lifetime batting act. But in his 35 years with NBC, there's little Costas hasn't done and few places he hasn't been, sometimes with shows and seasons overlapping each other. He started doing the Major League Baseball Game of the Week in the early 80s, while also hosting the NBC NFL pregame show. In the 1990s, he went back to basketball to host the NBA Showtime studio show and do play-by-play. At various times, he's hosted NHL coverage, thoroughbred racing coverage, golf tournaments, and NASCAR races. He's been the face and voice of 12 Olympics for NBC, starting with the 1988 Winter Games in Calgary. He's either hosted or called World Series, Super Bowls, NBA Finals, and Stanley Cup Finals. One of his signatures was bringing a dry sense of humor to sports broadcasts, and he was also a frequent presence on Late Night with David Letterman, providing play-by-play for goofball bits like elevator races. Talk shows were nothing new to Costas, who hosted a radio chat show starting in 1986, but a couple of years later, he began following Letterman with his own network interview show. Later with Bob Costas premiered on August 22, 1988 at 1.30 a.m., and unlike his madcap lead-in, later was a half-hour sit-down with one person in which Costas asked them about their life and career. Guests included Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, Dudley Moore, Robert Duvall, and Carol King, all interview subjects with their own difficulties that Costas wasn't afraid to tackle. Some were more forthcoming than others. Costas also spoke with sports luminaries like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, John Wooden, Jim Brown, and Mickey Mantle. Although some wondered why the show existed at all and a network that already had Johnny Carson and David Letterman preceding it, later found an audience and NBC let Costas grow into the role. In 1991, as later was entering its third season, TV critic Ken Tucker wrote in Entertainment Weekly, quote, Costas is comparable to Howard Cosell in that his first instincts are to ask athletes blunt questions and to expose the showbiz trappings behind big-time sports. But... Mercifully, he does so without any of Cosell's grating sonorousness or sleepy-eyed malice. Costas is the anti-Cosell, end quote. Costas hosted over 600 episodes of Later between 1988 and 1994. He chose to leave the show in February of that year, and his successor was Greg Kinnear, who would oversee a show that was more of a traditional late-night talk show, monologue, bits, studio audience, than its earlier incarnation. Costas also has filled in as a news anchor on the Today Show and the NBC Nightly News. The 66-year-old is still at the Peacock Network, although he's slowed down in his many responsibilities 
even in hosting the weekly Sunday night football game. He also still barely looks a day over 40. Costas can be seriously old school, occasionally railing on against AstroTurf, wildcard play-in games, the XFL, and anything else he thinks might be intruding upon the sanctity of whatever sport he's broadcasting that day. But he's still got a sarcastic streak and a quick wit. And not a lot of other sports announcers get to play themselves in stuff like basketball, Pootie Tang, and Family Guy, or get their own anthropomorphized avatar in the Pixar universe, as Costas did when he voiced Bob Cutlass in all three Cars movies. Costas, George, and the Greek all got to work on the biggest stage in sports, the Super Bowl. When it comes to sheer numbers of eyeballs, nothing compares to the NFL championship. This year's game between the Eagles and Patriots dropped in viewership from last year's New England-Atlanta matchup to only 103.4 million viewers from 111 million. And yet, it's still the 10th highest-watched show in the history of American television. Numbers 1 through 8 are also Super Bowls, and number 9 is the series finale of MASH. So, it's kind of a big deal. And a lot of that watching is done in bars and other cover-charging establishments. That's where Blanche likes to watch the Super Bowl, according to the opening scene in A Little Romance, a season one episode written by Barry Finaro and Mort Nathan, we've talked about a number of times before. Dorothy, I've just discovered a great new way to meet more men. More men? You're going to need a turnstile in your bedroom. <laughs> I enrolled in a CPR class. For six consecutive hours, I was on my back while dozens of eligible men pressed their lips to mine and breathed air into my limp little body. (laughs) So what? You did the same thing at McSorley's Bar Super Bowl weekend. (laughs) We've also talked before about how the Golden Girls had no series Bible for most of its run until Mark Cherry and Jamie Wooten joined the writing staff in season five. That would explain why this McSorley's is a bar in Miami and in the season four episode Little Sister... Sophia says Dorothy was born on the pinochle table of a different McSorley's bar, presumably in Brooklyn. The girls also had Wolfie's, which was either a bar, a restaurant, a kosher deli, or a soda fountain, depending on which episode it was mentioned in. And of course, we had the Rusty Anchor, the bar in which Dorothy and Blanche squared off for the affections of a group of men who apparently have never seen a woman before. Being a sports broadcaster, or a sports writer for that matter, is a deceptively difficult job. Tons of people shout at you all day for watching games for free. But the hours are long, the preparation is intense, the pay is minimal, the fights are frequent, and networking is of paramount importance. Those folks work hard, and people who rise to the level of Bob Costas work 10 times harder than anyone else. Trust me, I worked for 10 years at the Associated Press and spent all of my long hours in the office and not out on assignments because I was very bad at preparation and networking, and I hate fights being a podcaster or a couch blogger is much more my style. It'd be a lot more fun if I didn't have to do a real job for, like, money. But hey, that's why I appreciate you all listening. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we go younger and talk about some kid-focused sports stuff. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.